Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. In the year 1436, the world was changed forever because a German goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg grew a fantastic beard. We call it the French Fork style today. Very risky, but also high reward. Um, oh, and he also developed this uh, invention, it's pretty important to us, called the printing press as well, 1436. You may have heard it said, knowledge is power. Well, with this newly found innovation, written information was now made available quickly, inexpensively, to the masses. And it changed everything. Interesting thing, though, you, you might not know. G- Gutenberg died poor. Uh, he died poor because the printing press needed a couple things to really pop. Uh, first, it needed literacy rates to rise among people. Second, it needed a distribution network for the literature that it could print. Uh, he died so poor that the creditors he owed money to repoed his printing presses. But eventually, as you know, it did pop. And it became what historians would call like the first domino in what ignited the Renaissance and what ignited the Protestant Reformation. I mean, literally the printing press made Martin Luther the first ever best-selling author. It was the first domino in the science, uh, scientific revolution, the first domino in the Enlightenment. Some even believe it was the first domino in the Industrial Revolution because it was one of the first great examples of machines taking the jobs of people. Now, in the same way that the printing press changed the world in 1436, I believe that the year 2007 also marks a critical moment of transition in human history. And the reason why is because, as some of you may know, in the year 2007, what? Well, lots of things happened particularly in the world of technology. First, uh, Facebook became a global phenomenon. Basically, you didn't just need a college email address to get on it. You could just have an email address. Um, Twitter uh, became its own platform, and it went global. Hadoop, the most important software you've probably never heard of, began expanding the ability of any company to store and analyze massive amounts of unstructured data, which ended up enabling big data and cloud computing. Speaking of cloud computing, in 2007, the cloud took off. In 2007, IBM launched the Watson computer. In 2007, Kindle started the ebook revolution. In 2007, Google introduced Android. And, drum rule please, most importantly, in 2007, inventor Steve Jobs released the first generation iPhone. There it is. And within five years, by the year 2012, Over 50% of the American population had a smartphone. Uh, Pew Research reported last year that that number has now surpassed 85%, leading many historians to say that 2007 was the real beginning of the digital revolution. 
Now, uh, for what it's worth, young folks, all right, just so you know, I'm not like the old guy up here. Uh, we had portable phones before the iPhone. Uh, in fact, the first portable phone was released, as some of you may remember very well, in 1983. Got a picture of it right here. Check this bad boy out. And I doubt few of you own one of these because when the first portable phone was released, it costed $4,000 in 83. It was basically a status symbol for the rich when it was first produced. Now, as we moved into the 90s, they started mass producing a little more, you know, technology got more sophisticated, became more affordable. So I remember my dad had one of these bad boys, a bag phone. And we would plug it into the car's auxiliary power outlet, you know, the little thing you'd push in for the cigarette lighter. You'd plug it into there and we could make phone calls from the car. Unbelievable. <laughs> now, as the millennia turned, uh, the hot phone before the iPhone was the Blackberry. Reason why it really, uh, you know, penetrated the market was because uh, not only were they the first to go with 3G networking, but, uh, or the 3G network, but they also marked the end of human civilization as we know it. They put on their phones a front-facing camera. And so began the selfie. Now, selfies actually weren't cool quite yet, okay? But I want... You know, young folks, that long before selfies were a thing, I was selfieing. In 2005, I took one of the world's first and great selfies. Uh, I was walking across stage for my high school senior year graduation. You can date me, date me accordingly. Uh, I went over to my principal, 6'5", Dr. Julius Kroll, former Marine, rarely smiled, and I pulled out my flip phone, and I took a selfie of the two of us. And I swear I could not find that picture this week. Oh, what, I, I searched more for that picture than I researched the sermon. I'm just telling you, right? But I could not, I couldn't find it. I wanted to. But point is, is that, you know, I've got, I got a selfie game, right? I'm not a selfie. Uh, Thomas Friedman in the year 2004 uh, wrote this uh, in a New York Times column. He said, in 2004, Facebook didn't exist yet. Twitter was still sound. The cloud was still in the sky. 4G was a parking space. Applications were what you sent to college. LinkedIn was barely known, and most people thought it was a prison. Big Data was a good name for a rap star, and Skype was a typographical error. <laughs> and it's true. Then in 2007, Apple was an intruder in a relatively sophisticated market, but they disrupted everything with the first-gen iPhone, and things just haven't been the same. It, just, it changed the world, literally. And if you were born in the 21st century, then you're what sociologists call digital natives because it's all you've ever known. Now, if you were born in the 20th century, though, which makes, which makes it sound so old, right? But if you were born in the 20th century then you can remember a time when we didn't carry around this little portal to everything in our pocket. You can remember a time where uh, we suffered through this thing called boredom. Do you remember boredom? I remember like going to like the doctor's office or the dentist's office and sitting in the waiting room and like just waiting. <laughs> just like waited. Sometimes I would scrounge for one of these. Anybody? Anybody? 
Yes, if you could find the Highlights magazine, it was like, ah, or Sports Illustrated. I can remember when we would go on long trips in the car, you'd have to come up with like stupid games to kill the time. And so we'd play the ABC game or the license plate game. And has anyone ever seen a Hawaiian license plate in the wild before? Like, honestly, anybody ever gotten all 50 states? Because I always wonder, like, how do the Hawaii plates get stateside, if you know them so much? Now, I've got three young kids now, and I'll go ahead and tell you this. If the iPads aren't charged, we ain't going on a family trip. <laughs> That's how quick it's changed. Kids don't know how to be bored anymore, and neither do we. Neither do we. Now, there's been lots of sociological and psychological work done on this, data gathering on how this is changing our brain, changing our communities, how it's impacting the first digital native generation. And I I don't want to be like a doomsday sayer only. It's not all bad. There's some really good stuff that's coming from technology. But there's also some discouraging stuff that we need to be aware of. If I were to summarize the discouraging data um, for you in two points, it's pretty, pretty simple. One, young people are spending too much time on screens. Too much. There is such a thing as too much. Uh, In 2017, Gene Twangy, psychologist, uh, published an article in The Atlantic called How the Smartphone Destroyed an Entire Generation. Pretty clickbaity, right? I don't know if destroyed is the right word, but the, the hypothesis was pretty simple. Starting in the year 2012, we saw a spike in mental health illnesses, in uh, antisocial behavior, and in extended adolescence. And why? Well, Twangy hypothesizes because 2012 was the first year that 50% of the population had a smartphone. And it's only gone up and to the right since. Twangy supports this with all sorts of data. And at the conclusion of the article, Twangy writes this. If you're going to give advice for a happy adolescence, based on our data, it would be straightforward, young people. Put down the phone. Turn off the laptop. And do something that does not involve a screen. Now, not only are uh, are young people on screens too much, but so are we. And that's actually impacting young people in return. Uh, Cheryl Turkle, an MIT sociologist and psychologist, says that the adult's constant need to be connected with a screen to the outside screen world, if you will, is actually having an unforeseen uh, impact on the parent-child relationship. Interesting dynamic that's introduced. Kids no longer have to just fight with their siblings for attention. Now they have to fight with iPads and iPhones, with Siri and Alexa, with Apple Watches and with laptops. Basically, we have an entire generation being raised up watching their parents more interested in connecting with like strangers out there than connecting with them right here. Turkle writes, a generation has grown up that has lived this unsatisfying youth and really does not associate their phones with any kind of glamour, but rather with a sense of deprivation. That last word just hits me, deprivation. Now, I, I wanna be clear here, okay? I'm not anti-tech. I'm not like trying to bash the young generation or the old generation around this. I'm pro-tech. I love all the techs. 
The techs are good for us. What would we do during this time of year if we didn't have heated seats in our car? Come on, like the tech is good. And I actually believe that God is a pro-technology God. When we engage in technological innovation, it's a cultivation of the earth and an exercise of the mind. Both are a part of our calling. In Genesis 1-2, the cultural mandate given to us from our creator is to rule and reign the earth, to steward it, or to bring out the potential of this world God gave us to the glory of God. And Jesus' first great commandment was what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. So when we engage in technological innovation, we cultivate the earth, we exercise our minds to the glory of God and to the benefit of others around us, we are operating in our sweet spot as a species. Tech, in many ways, is the front lines of the kingdom of God. So go for it, techies. I'm with you. But that being said, with how quickly technology has been advancing over the last 15 years, we just need to pause for a second, pause, and ask ourselves this important question. Has our tech outpaced our ethics? Has it advanced so fast that we've just gotten swept up in it and done no important moral reflection? on what this means for us. You see, here's our default. Our default is usually to just think that new is better. Progress is good. Easier means happier. And that's not always the case, is it? Now, you guys might know, throughout this series, I've been making the case that our popular culture has a tremendous amount of power to manipulate us, by distracting us and then addicting us. Our popular culture has so much power to like speed us up to an unhealthy pace and also to deform us into ungodly assumptions. We just get swept away. And I've been arguing in this series that the primary mechanism through which our culture is doing that is, is technology, is through screens. Now, if you're with me at all in this, if you're like, yeah, we need to, you know, we need to curb this, this in some way, shape, or form, then I think we got three options. One of three options. One, we can just ignore it and just hope things get better by themselves. Which is what most people do. Most people are like, well, you know, he's a pastor, so he's a little bit of a religious zealot overstating things, you know, and I'm not that impressionable. Okay, it's those sheep over there on the other side of the aisle. They're the ones, like text get, but it's not getting me, you know. This is what we do. This is what most people do. We overestimate our ability to resist, and then we underestimate our addiction. We overestimate our holiness and underestimate uh, our impressionability. And so we just get swept up, and we end up living lives that are founded on secular assumptions, frenzied, hurried, unsatisfied, and lonely. So that's option one. It's an option. Or there's option two, we could swing to the other side of the spectrum and go Amish. Which again, isn't all bad. Like, there's many things I respect about the Amish. First, I respect their honey. My uncle goes to this farmer's market in Lexington. He would get honey from the Amish. It's great. It's fantastic. There's also key aspects to their theology that's so beautiful. But when it comes to their approach to technology, at least to me, it feels like it was a bit of a swing in the, in the, uh, in the other direction away from addiction to like total deprivation. So that's option two. You could, go, you could go that way. Or I think there might be a better option, option three, which I would call developing a tech 
rule of life. We engage it, but we put tech in its proper place, and that's under the lordship of Jesus. Now, if you remember week one of the series, we talked about what a rule of life is. We're talking about St. Benedict's rule and all. You remember this? Okay, quick review. A rule of life is, is basically a set of, of rules, regulations, restrictions, rhythms that you intentionally welcome into your life so that you can point your life towards Jesus. They actually free you over time. Think of the, uh, the bumpers on a bowling alley lane. Some of you use these often. Some of you can only can bowl with these. So what, is, what do the bumpers do, right? Well, as you roll down the lane of life, they keep you pointed towards the goal. And as tech has advanced so quickly over the last 15 years, I just think we need some tech bumpers. We need some tech boundaries. We need some tech rumble strips along the way to help us realize when maybe we're driving off of the straight and narrow. Now, honestly, full disclosure, today I was supposed to talk about the unhurried rhythm of silence and solitude. That's what will be posted on the blog later this week for those of you who have been following on the blog. And I would encourage you to engage in silence and solitude. But as I was writing this sermon and like trying to integrate technology and all that as, as it's going along, I just kept thinking, we can't, we can't be silent. We can't even get into quiet spaces. We can't calm our heart and calm our lives for more than a few seconds anyways without going here, there, or whatever, if we don't figure out how to quiet technology in our lives. That's the first step. I believe it's in the silent place. It's in solitude where God really speaks to us. He can fill our heart with joy and his peace in a special way. He can guide our lives in a divine way. I really do believe that I've experienced that in my own quiet life with him, but we can't get there until we place some boundaries on tech. So as a first step towards it, towards a prayer life, towards a scripture reading life, towards silence and solitude and Sabbath and all these other unhurried rhythms, we've got to build some tech boundaries. So this is what we're after today, and we're going to do it uh, in two parts. First, I want to establish some big picture values. This is like tech theology. These are the foundation stones. And then second, I want to rattle off for you a bunch of tech practices, like rule of life practices that you can implement. All right. This is the practical part of the sermon. So for those of you who are homework you know, type folks, get your pencils ready. All right. Uh, I'm only going to recommend one book this week, by the way. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because I've costed you lots of money over this series, I apologize. I don't apologize for that. Those are great books that I've recommended, all right? But we're only gonna know one this week. Um, it's this book here. It's called TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. In his book, he lays out his own tech rule of life. He begins the book with his tech values because you have to start with the why before you get to the what, and then he gives tons of practices. So if you're at all interested in getting serious about this, this is a great starting point to provoke thought. And I'm going to steal five of his six values. Lay them out for you here. All right, big picture value number one. Crouch writes, a technology is in its proper place when it helps us bond with the real people that we have been given to love. It's out of its proper place when we end up bonding with people at a distance, like celebrities, whom we will never meet. Or in other words, core value number one, we use tech to build our closest relationships. Our closest relationships. Now when I say that, it seems pretty obvious from us when we're kind of detached from the situation. Like if I were to say to you, who's more important to you? Like, like your five-year-old son sitting here on the floor in front of you wanting your attention or 
Connie's son, she's always posting super cute pictures of on Instagram. Scroll, 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 scroll. The answer that's easy. Okay, what would be wiser for your life? To uh, ask your wife how her day went? She's sitting right there on the other couch. Or to check out what Joe, that guy from high school, is eating for dinner. Wings, an IPA, oh, you know. He's got a smoker. (laughs) Again, the answer is obvious. So the, the challenge here is to actually calibrate your energy to the place of your highest impact. The, the reality is that for 99.9999999% of human beings, our greatest opportunity of impact are the people right in front of us every day. So you can either have a really small, almost insignificant impact on a lot of people, or you could have a really big impact on a few. I would encourage you to choose the latter. And I think that's where scripture directs us. So uh, on this Friday morning, I got on the Wall Street Journal's website. And uh, this is what I found literally in the click of a button, just one click. I can give you a full profile on the market. I can tell you about iPhone sales in China. I can tell you what Elon Musk is up to. I can tell you what the best and worst airlines were in 2021. I can tell you about the spread of hunger in Afghanistan and drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. But can I tell you my neighbor's name? That's at the heart of this. So look, tech is out of its proper place when we give the lion's share of our energy and our attention to the people and places that we have very little influence over. And it's in its proper place when we're leveraging technology to love, to grow, to impact the people and the places that we have lots of influence over. You see, tech value number one, we use it to build our closest relationships. It's a good value. Here's number two, Crouch writes, technology is in its proper place when it starts great conversation. It's out of its proper place when it prevents us from talking and listening to one another. Or in other words, this is value number two, we use tech to have healthy conversations. Healthy conver- healthy being the key word here. Now, am I right or am I right? True or true? Um, it, is, uh, it is harder to have a conversation with uh, your, your child when they're on a screen. Okay, how about, how about this one? Um, is it easier or harder to uh, engage your husband when the game's on? It's just, it's just more difficult. It's like this background noise that steals and sucks our attention away. Now, not only is it harder to have conversation with screens, but I think the conversations that we're actually having on like social media platforms are just unhealthy to begin with. Very difficult. So most of the conversations, if you even want to call them conversations, because I don't know if I'd call it conversation, most of the content being posted there is, uh, is either rage or, or just self-promotion. Look at me. Look at me. Like, how egotistical do we have to be, by the way, to believe that the world needs real-time updates on our life on three different digital platforms every day? But it becomes our own little stage that we step on and we perform for the attention of others, the pity of others, the admiration of others, whatever it may be. Like in the virtue signaling that happens on social media, it's just, 
You know, you ever notice how when people post content, again, it's rarely about having a healthy conversation. It's just more about painting us into the story of our community or of our world as the hero or as the sage or as the comedian or as the victim. Fill in the blank. Look at my holy rage. Look at my wise political take. Look at how close I am with God. Oh, look at how mean those people are to me. Look at how glamorous and cultured my Friday nights are. Look at me. Again, I don't even call that conversation. That's just outrage porn and self-aggrandizement. So back to value number two, okay? And this is an important one. We use tech, we use tech for healthy conversation. Third, Crouchwright's technology is in its proper place when it helps us take care of the fragile bodies we inhabit. It's out of its proper place when it promises to help us escape the limits and vulnerabilities of these bodies altogether. Or to sum up, we use tech mindful of our physical limits and our emotional needs. Our physical limits and our emotional needs. When tech is causing you to lose sleep or to stay up way too late, night after night after night. When tech is creating for you a sedentary lifestyle where you just like sit and then after that you sit and then you go home and you sit and then you sit some more. When tech is making you so available to both work and the world that you can't have like a night alone, like it's invading your weeknights and not just your weeknights, but then also your weekends, but not just your weekends and also your Sabbath, but not just your Sabbath, all through your vacation and not just your vacation, but also Sunday mornings when you're at church listening to a sermon on a digital rule of life, like it's out of, it's out of its proper place, right? So we need to live with tech acknowledging that we have limits. This makes us believe that we're limitless, that we can work 90 hour weeks. We weren't created that. We were created in the image of God, yes, which is great dignity for us, but we're also created from the dust of the ground and from dust we shall return, or from, to dust we shall return one day, right? So we use tech with those limits in mind. Fourth, uh, technology is in its proper place when it helps us acquire skill and mastery of domains that are the glory of human culture. Sports, music, the arts, cooking, writing, accounting, etc. When we let technology replace the development of skill, this is the key, with passive consumption, something has gone wrong. Or uh, value number four, we use tech for cultivation, not consumption. Cultivation or creativity, maybe you could, creativity, not consumption. Now, one of the great dystopian portrayals of this reality in the history of film and art is a movie that many of us have seen before. <clears throat> I believe we have a picture of it. Wally. Hasn't have you seen Wally? Wally. Okay, so Wally. As you may remember in Wally, one of the main plot lines is that evil tech takes over. It makes life easy everywhere, always for human beings. They literally leave the trashed earth and go on an intergalactic space cruise, and over time they become not creators, not cultivators, but consumers, right? They grow sedentary, unskilled, obese, and like tech locks them into this cycle, and it sort of toilet bowl swirls downhill into this meaningless existence for them. You got all this out of Wally, right? Now, eventually, though, the captain of the ship and Wally and Eve uh, save the world. They save the human race from evil tech. 
And then in this glorious moment at the end, the captain lands the the ship on earth and they all get off and he says this to the kids. Uh, He says, you kids are going to grow all kinds of plants. Vegetable plants, pizza plants. (laughs) And I love that part because it just shows they got a long road ahead of them. But it's also an overstatement of what happens when we become consumers. So the point is this, uh, comfort doesn't build character. Passivity doesn't build courage. Luxury doesn't usually build wisdom. See, the primary difference of the technology that we uh, are using today in our world that makes us different than every other human generation to come before us is that this technology actually does the work for us. It works by itself. The great technological innovation of ages past were usually like agriculture tools. Here's a shovel, like, Look, it's a wheel, weaponry, right? All of which require human effort, skill, and mastery in order to use. But today, we got like Roombas that are running right now at home while you're at church, sucking up the dog hair and the kids' crumbs off the floor. We've, we've got cars now that, that are driving themselves. What's the commercial? I mean, it's okay. Like, I think it's kind of cheesy. Anyways, anyways, you get the point. Uh, So uh, tech value number four, we use tech for cultivation, not consumption. Here's the last one. Crouch writes, technology is in its proper place when it helps us cultivate all for the created world. There are actually two Bibles according to Scripture. Scripture and God's created world. He reveals himself to us through that. So technology is in its proper place when it helps us cultivate all for the created world. We are part of and responsible for stewarding. And it's out of its proper place when it keeps us from engaging the wild and wonderful natural world with all our senses. This was pretty self-explanatory, y'all. Go for a walk without your phone. Experience, everything doesn't have to be experienced secondhand through a camera lens. And then documented and filtered and shared. Some things can just be enjoyed, like with your eyes and with the loved ones right here around you and with God. It's a beautiful thing when you do. Okay, quick review. One, two, three, four, five. These are Krause's tech values. This is like the foundation block. You got to start with the why before you get to the what. We're going to the what in a second, but throw them up there for me. Uh, Value number one, we use tech to build our closest relationships. Value number two, we use tech to have healthy conversations. Value number three, we use tech mindful of our physical limits and emotional needs. Value four, we use tech for cultivation, not consumption. And last, five, we use tech to cherish the created world around us. These are good. Appreciate Crouch for that. If you want more on it, go read his book. Now, uh, I want to transition into giving you just rattling off really quickly about 15 or so, I didn't count them, maybe 15 or 20 um, real life practices. It's going to go very fast. So here's what I want you to do. As we get practical right now, I don't want you to feel overwhelmed by this. What I want you to do is I just want you to turn your antennas on, turn your ears on, and just three, four practices that just sort of catch you. You're like, I could do that, or that would help me connect with God better, or that fits my stage of life. Just three or four, I want you to grab them, you know, put them in your pocket and hold on to them, all right? Don't get overwhelmed by this, though. A rule of life is not meant to be legalistic or burdensome. It's meant to set you free. So three or four of them that you feel like might be freeing and connect you with God, grab them, write them down, hold on to them. 
All right, here, here's your list. First, start with a digital detox. Some of us need, some of you don't need this. Some of you do need this. Start, it's an addiction. It's an addiction. So you need a 30-day detox to begin. By detox, I mean cut out all the technology in your life except what you need for your job and what you need to keep your kids alive. Other than that, detox the rest of it, 30 days. And during that 30 days, start trying to integrate some of these spiritual rhythms like prayer, scripture reading, silence and solitude in your life and start planning what your rule of life for tech might look like when you re-enter. Here's another good one. The 111 rule. It's called the 111 rule. One hour a day, one day a week, one week a year, no phone. Just try, like one hour, maybe at dinner time. One day a week, maybe on the Sabbath day, like sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday. Give it a try. One week a year. Like on that family vacation, decide ahead of time that you're only going to use your phone for the map app because God knows us, we need the map app. But other than that, give it a shot. Uh, next, Next one. No screens when we eat. No screens when we worship. No screens when we're at social gatherings with others. And no screens for the big events of life. These are great little boundaries on spaces that could be relational, where love could be shared. So, you know, it's interesting. I get to do a lot of weddings as a pastor, and I've noticed the shift in, in how people do them over the last 10 years. So, as recent as like five years ago, people would do, um, when they got married, they would do these wedding hashtags. Anybody do a wedding hashtag? Come on. We did. Come on. Hashtag best McFrenzies, okay? No? All right. So people will do these, these hashtags. And the goal was at the wedding when somebody to take a picture, they post it on social media, they'd hashtag with that and then they would all be, like all the pictures of the wedding would be in the same place. So like the couple and the people could go back later and, and check out the party. Clever, right? But I'm gonna tell you what, that was five years ago. Today, it has swung to the entire other side. Of the, probably the last four or five weddings that I have done, I've had the bride or the groom come up to me and say, we want you to announce at the beginning of the ceremony, first words out of your mouth, that this is an unplugged ceremony. Please, no screens, at least until the reception. And when they ask this, I always ask squawks, I'm intrigued. Like this younger generation's catching on to this, I'm intrigued. I'm like, so what? Why, do you, why are you so against the screen? Tell me why. And like, because we want to see, we want to see our family and friends' eyes. We want to see their smiles. We want to feel their presence. And we don't want a bunch of phones held up in our wedding pictures. That's what we want. Uh, back to our, uh, our practices here. Ooh, this is a good one. Intentionally shape space. Intentionally shape space. What do you mean by that, Tyler? Um, think of the space in your house that's like the place where you lounge the most. The place where you, you hang out the most. And think about how you've shaped the furniture in that room. Is the furniture shaped... T- where it faces each other and encourages conversation? Or is the furniture shaped to where it faces? Yeah, you know. So look, here's this, this is a neat trick. If you don't have cable, you won't watch cable. You'll do something else. If, uh, if your kitchen table is the comfiest and coziest spot in the house, people will spend more time there. Or if your couch is facing the fireplace, 
you will die a happy human being. I'm telling you. Intentionally shape space for what you want to cultivate attention around. So it's interesting. Me and Lindsay grew up in, in different homes here. I grew up in a home where, uh, you know, oftentimes we'd come home, we'd watch sports, have the TV on, watching sports. Just me and my dad were sports guys. We're always watching sports on TV. But um, Lindsay grew up in a home where TV was not like a thing. Like I've, in the, what, 11 years now that I've known her, never in her house has been like this nice, big, fancy, flat screen TV at her, at her, home, at her childhood home. Um, in fact, they never had cable. And so I asked her when we first started dating, I was like, well, what do you guys watch on TV? And she's like, well, we have all the DVDs for Andy Griffith. What a sheltered childhood. No, I was like, she had, that's what they did. They would watch Andy Griffith. They would go out and rent like movies when you did that thing, you know, where you did Blockbuster, may she rest in peace, right? But that's what, that's what they did. And I would mock her relentlessly when we first started dating. You watched Andy, you can quote Barney more than you can quote Jesus. What are you, what kind of Christian are you? But but now I realize there's some real wisdom to shaping the space of a home like that. <clears throat> Let's fly through a few of these. Uh, spouses have one another. Oh, this is important. Spouses have one another's passwords and parents have total access to kids' devices. I just think this is important for accountability. And I'll go ahead and tell you this. I'm not trying to create anxiety or a rift in your relationship. I'm for healthy family relationships. But if your kids or your spouse resist this, I've seen it so many times, y'all, as a pastor. I'm just saying, if they resist this, there's usually something underneath that. Uh, Screen time limits for everyone, not just the kids, but for the parents too. Uh, Phones always on D&D or uh, notifications off. Like add your spouse or your friends or whoever that need to get through to you to your favorites, but then turn everything else off so that you go to your phone when you need it, not when it needs you. Uh, Minimal apps, just purge y'all. More about utility than entertainment. Uh, No social media apps on your phone. I dare you to try this. I've been doing this for four or five months. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Only go to Facebook or Twitter on your browser and only go on to Instagram um, or Snap or whatever it is that you're on after you download the app and then delete it when you're done. I promise you it'll cut your social media time down. Uh, Next, don't start the day with your phone. Like before you unlock, pray or connect with God in some way, don't let your newsfeed or your timeline set the emotional temperature and spiritual direction of your day. Let God do that. Uh, limit unnecessary phone usage in front of your kids. Kids should grow up without seeing parents have a phone as an extra appendage. It encourages phone addiction. Um, this one is my opinion. Screen time should not be used as rewards for kids because it just develops a sort of warped sense of relationship with screens and your kids. Uh, use screens together as much as possible. One screen at a time. This will be helpful because some of you are like watching the TV and the computer's here working and we're also scrolling the message or whatever. Okay. Um, oh, and then the last one, only quality television. Only quality television. By that I mean entertain yourself with art, entertain yourself with learning, entertain yourself with things that form you, entertain yourself with stuff that are, that's fun and funny. Absolutely. But not the trashy stuff. And you know what I'm talking about. The stuff that uses violence or sex to like capitalize on your lusts and cheap thrills. Stuff that was created, lowest common denominator, shallow to just sell tickets or make money. Which is most of the stuff that's out there today, right? But engage in more wholesome and healthy stuff for you. Now, uh, 
I do feel like I need to make one retraction before we close and take communion this week. And this is on from my message last week. Uh, last week, apparently the cult following of Clueless is just a bit touchy in our church because last week <laughs> I made some comments about Clueless um, and its unsophisticated plot. And apparently Clueless is a takeoff of Jane Austen's book, Emma. Didn't know that. So I take back what I said. <laughs> and I acknowledge that clearly that's why people are watching it because they are Jane Austen fans and love to see her timeless wisdom and literature played out in a 90s high school teen drama. All right. <laughs> now, shall we close? I know that's a lot of information. Um, I've, I'm really not trying to overwhelm you with this stuff. I'm really not trying to overwhelm you. I just want you to get started. I want you to get started. For the record, when you get started, here's what you'll find out. Addictions die hard. But you gotta get started. I want you to make it a priority. My family's made it a priority in our life really over the last few years, and we're just getting into this too. Like, like we're early, like we're early in the process. It's been two or three years now where we've been trying to be more thoughtful of it. One, because I, I remember two or three years ago, we started noticing how quickly our young kids got addicted to screens. Two, three, four years old, they were just... It's scary. And then, well, also over the last couple of years, we've noticed just how quickly people have been swept up and swept away in the political and secular ideologies of our day. Like well-meaning Jesus followers just captivated by it. So we've made this a priority. I'm encouraging you to do it as well. Take two or three, maybe, or start with the digital detox, go after it for a month, and then each month after, continue to just add another rule. And tweak it for your family. Make it fit for you. That's the only way that it'll work. Don't do Tyler's rule. Do, do your rule of life. And here's what I know anyways. Whether you intentionally go after a rule of life or not, you already have a tech rule of life. You know that, right? You already have rhythms with your tech. You already have habits on social media. You already have a routine when you wake up in the morning. You already have shaped your space and your attention around something. You already have boundaries where text allowed and where it isn't. You do. The question is, is it intentional or is it forming you like Jesus? Is it setting you free? That's what a good rule of life does. I want you to, I want to encourage you to build a rule that will set you free. A rule of life is not meant to constrict. It's meant to set you free from the slavery of our digital world today. And I can promise you that if you do this, you'll be less anxious. You'll be less angry. You'll be more joyful and present in the moment. You'll be free. You won't turn your brain off to mindless consumption. Instead, you'll turn your brain on to people, nature, and creativity. You'll read more. You'll talk more. You'll spend more time with loved ones and more time outdoors. You'll notice more, just like notice. You'll get hours upon hours of your time back. You'll get your attention span back. Remember those? It'll be easier to pray, read scripture, connect with God. And you won't hand your mind and soul over to politicians, brands, apps, or news corporations. In a lot of ways, it will free you. And I'll go ahead and tell you this. If you do this right, your kids are going to think it's cool sometimes. They're going to think it's weird sometimes. But most of the time, they're going to think it's really, really annoying. 
and you're going to hear, hear this constant refra uh, refrain from them, but my friends get to, but you know, their family gets to, well, at their house, their family does it this way. That's all right. One thing your kids need to hear from you over and over again is that our family's different. Because we are. As people of God, we are different as we follow in the way of Jesus. So I want to close by reading this advice from Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10, and then I'll invite John up and we'll take of communion. Paul writes this. He says, do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and an old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying. Everyone should accept it. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle, for our hope is in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, 